Will you please turn with me to your study outlines as you're turning? Uh, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and our friends in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad that you are joining us for our study of God's Word. And the title of the series is Forgotten God, meaning the, the member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we don't talk about as much. We talk about God the Son, Jesus, a lot. We talk about God the Father, a lot. But we hardly ever talk about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we've named this series Forgotten God. Um, Now, the Holy Spirit, I said last week, was mentioned in the Bible 533 times. But actually, when you call, you add in the inferences to the Holy Spirit, as well as the times that He's directly mentioned, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 800 times in the Bible. There's a huge subject in Scripture, 800 times. And here's something I just learned this past week. I love these little factoids. I thought this was so cool, is that he's mentioned from cover to cover. Uh, He's mentioned as early as the second verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2. Uh, You know, in verse 1, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So right away in the second verse of the Bible, you find the Holy Spirit is there involved in creation. Now, he's mentioned all the way at the end of the Bible as well. Five verses from the end, Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. So here we find in the second verse of the Bible, right at the beginning, he's involved in creation. Here we find in five verses from the end, one last plea to the human race. Come, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the forgotten God. Now what we're going to talk about today is seven pictures of the Holy Spirit. And there are many, you're probably even thinking of some that I haven't talked about, like wind or a dove. But I'm looking primarily at the ones where Jesus has these discourses uh, in the book of John about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at seven pictures of the Holy Spirit. The first picture is that of a river, a river. John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, verse 38. Um, Then he goes on to say in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Remember that phrase, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, uh, going back here to the beginning, to verse 37, let's give the context to this. The festival that's mentioned here is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so every day in the Feast of Tabernacles, there was this ritual where a priest would carry a gold pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam. Uh, you show a picture here. This is the Pool of Siloam today as archaeologists have uncovered it. And so they would take a pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam. They would pour it. The priest would pour it on the altar, and it was a reminder of their dependence on water. So on the last and greatest day of the festival, okay, Jesus stands up and says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Okay, so it was a reminder of their dependence on water. And so Jesus was saying in the same way we're dependent on water to quench our physical thirst, so we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to quench our spiritual thirst. It's been said that there's a God-shaped hole in every person, 
And we're always trying to fill that hole. And, and our hearts are, Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O God, until we find our rest in thee. The thirst will never be quenched until it's quenched with an indwelling and a filling of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Lisa last month preached on the woman at the well uh, there in John chapter 4. And here was a woman that was trying to fill that empty spot in her heart with relationships with men. And Jesus called her on it. He says, you've been married five times, and now you're living with a guy, and so you think you're going to fill that void with relationships with men. But now Jesus gives them an alternative. He gives her an alternative. Uh, John 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks the water I give them, the rivers of water, the Holy Spirit, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring, a river of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I said last week uh, that really the series within the series is the filling of the Holy Spirit to quench our thirst as opposed to the things we try to put in its place. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God and apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes between people, uh, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God with which to make him happy. And so Jesus said, let me give you something different. Let me give you a spring of living water. Let me, let me give you a, a river of water, the indwelling and infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said last Sunday, there's kind of a series within a series that I'm going to keep coming back to, and some of it will be repetitious, but I really feel um, so much that not, not only have we neglected a little bit talking about the Holy Spirit, but this is one of the most important things to get in the Christian life. And the pastors just don't talk about it enough. And that's why I'm going to keep coming back to it. And you'll hear some of it that's the same, and then I'll expand on it a little bit. The difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the infilling. When you are saved, when you come to Christ, okay, at that moment, uh, you are indwelt and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Another term for infilling is controlling or empowering, okay? So the moment you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that can happen in this moment. Uh, you don't have to wait right in front of you in the book rack. You'll see something that says resource. And it says how to become a follower of Jesus. Or another way you could say that is how to open up your heart and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and fellowship with him. And so we could say, instead of how to become a follower of Jesus, we say that because that's the most common reference in Scripture to being a Christian, is to be a Christ follower. But it could say how to open your heart to Christ, how to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's three steps. You admit your condition before God. God, I need forgiveness. B, you believe that Jesus is God's only solution. By your death on the cross and your shed blood, I can be forgiven. And then you choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. You choose to open your heart. And there's a little suggested prayer there. And there's nothing magical in the exact wording of that prayer. It simply summarizes what the Bible says we need to do to open our heart to Christ. And you can do that right now. Or you can take this card with you. 
and take it home and this afternoon or this evening before you go to bed, kneel next to your bed and pray that prayer and then tell somebody else about what you did. When you pray that prayer to receive Christ, tell uh, somebody else uh, about that step that you take. Tell another Christ follower uh, about this step that you take so they can encourage you in your new walk with Him. So at the moment that you're saved, uh, you come to Christ, you are indwelt and you're filled. Now you can never lose your indwelling. The Holy Spirit is God's seal on you. It's His stamp on you. It shows that you're a member of His family. So whenever He looks at you, He doesn't see the hot mess that we've made of our lives. Okay? And even after we come to Christ. He doesn't see the sin we did yesterday, today, or that we're going to commit tomorrow. Okay? At least Pastor Jay's going to sin tomorrow. I don't know. I may or may not. But, uh, you know, at least Pastor Jay's going to sin tomorrow. So you sit on the front row, you get abuse. You know that, Pastor Jay. You get the abuse when you sit on the front row. So at any rate, uh, he, he doesn't see that. Instead, he sees the Holy Spirit. He sees the perfection of Christ. He sees forgiveness. He sees the mark, the family mark that we are part of God's forever family. And so we can never lose the indwelling. We will take that into eternity with us uh, in heaven. But we can lose the filling. The moment we come to Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But we leak, okay? We leak the filling. And so when we sin, we lose the filling. And, and you have to be refilled maybe even on a constant basis, even several times a day. I pray for to be filled once again with God's Holy Spirit. Now, here's the verse we used that we base that on. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So he's saying, as we talked about last week, in the same way that wine controls you, rather than you being in control, when you get drunk, um, uh, uh, instead, be filled, and the, and the Greek word that is translated here, be filled, is, means a, continu a, a continuous action. That is, keep being filled over and over again with the Spirit. And so last, last Sunday, I used the illustration of um, Pastor Jay being pulled over for DWI, okay? And so he's being pulled over, and he's got a no, Pastor Jay is a complete teetotaler, okay? So it's hilarious teasing on Jay, okay? So the, the police officer says, walk the line, and as much as you want to walk that line, uh, oh my goodness, you're going to get a fine if you don't walk that line. You're going to lose your license. You may even go to jail. I mean, all kinds of bad stuff's going to happen. But as much as you try, you can't walk it because you're not in control. Uh, the alcohol is in control. So Paul writes, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to that, Okay? Instead, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the other illustration we used is of driving a car. And when the Holy Spirit, when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your car, and He has the steering wheel, you are also filled. But whenever you choose to do your own thing and sin, the Holy Spirit gets out of the driver's seat because He won't drive towards sin. Ain't going to do that. And he, and he says, I'll ride shotgun. I won't leave the car, but I'll ride shotgun. You're in control now. And so you begin to drive until you confess, oh, I'm so, Lord, forgive me. I'm back in control again. Holy Spirit, thank you for the forgiveness I find in Christ. Holy Spirit, you take the wheel once again. Now, that's a wonderful thing. And as you grow in Christ, you'll learn to be more sensitive so that maybe it's only a few minutes before you catch yourself and get the Holy Spirit back in control. Early in your Christian life, some Christians go years driving the car. Holy Spirit's there, but they're frustrated in their Christian life because they're in control rather than the Spirit-filled life. It, it, it's, it's frustrating. 
Uh, but as we grow in the Lord, we learn to have a sensitive conscience to boom, Holy Spirit, get back in control once again. But here's the key. Um, you waste so much time when you're driving instead of the Holy Spirit. And yeah, it's a wonderful thing when you give Him the control back once again. But you lose all this time uh, that you waste going in the wrong direction. So how much better to just kind of keep Him in control as much as you can. And you know, we love stories of people coming to Christ out of rough situations. They are trophies of grace. We love those stories. We love stories of uh, people that drifted from Christ and then came back. We love those grace-filled stories. But I tell you the most wonderful story of all is somebody that comes to Christ early as a child. And then throughout their teenage years, throughout their young adult years, they choose to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is this cumulative effect of long, steady obedience over a lifetime that has a powerful impact. I had Peter Torrey up here a few weeks ago, and I just thought to myself, what an example of a guy, our executive pastor, who just retired, and, and we went over his life and raised a quarter of a billion dollars to help starving people in the name of Jesus and, and for the cause of Christ and worked in 14 countries and thousands of people with AIDS prevention, and we just went through the list of his life. And, and, and you know what that's the cumulative effect of? That's somebody who at an early age committed their life to Christ and then tried to keep the Holy Spirit driving as much as possible. And there's this cumulative effect over uh, our, our life. So we want to cut down on the time that we're driving and maximize the time that the Holy Spirit is driving. Galatians 2, verse 20. The Bible says, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Another illustration is from a guy by the name of Bill Bright. And, uh, you know, many people may not know who he is today. Uh, you know, I'll be surprised at the 1111 service, maybe nobody or very few will, will know who he was. But if you call Billy Graham the greatest preacher of, of the 20th century, Bill Bright is the greatest leader, Christian leader of the 20th century. And I'll talk about this more later in the series. As a matter of fact, I have a gift that Kimberly and I want to give to everybody uh, that, that, that attends the last part of this series, a gift um, uh, to you that we want to give to you. And I'll expand more and talk more about Bill Bright and how, you know, he started the movement of Campus Crusade of Christ, started at UCLA and then eventually went up to Lake Arrowhead. So it started right here in our own backyard. And, and now billions of people have seen the Jesus film. 200 million people have committed their lives to Christ all around the world in 200 countries. 200 million have committed their lives to Christ. Just what a force. And one of the cornerstones of his ministry, okay, um, and, and we have people that are with Campus Crusade, the Slamers and many others within our church family that are a part of that. And one of the cornerstones was this whole idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he called it spiritual breathing. He said it's like you breathe out carbon dioxide and you breathe in oxygen, he said, here's just a way to remember it. You, you realize, oh boy, I'm back in control again. I'm back behind the steering wheel. Lord, I confess it. I breathe out my sin and self-will. And then I breathe in the Spirit's control and influence. I breathe out, Lord, I'm sorry. Got back in control again. And then I breathe in 
Holy Spirit, get behind the steering wheel. I'll ride shotgun once again. And he called that a spiritual breathing. And then one other illustration. This one just sends chills down my spine and tears in my eyes. Uh, If Billy Graham was the greatest preacher of the 20th century, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, maybe the greatest Christian leader in the world, was a man named D.L. Moody. And he was a shoe salesman from Boston. I think he, and, and shoe salesman from Boston had no or very little education. He murdered the king's English. I mean, if you were an English teacher, he would, you think I drive you crazy? He will drive you crazy on steroids, okay? Murdered the king's English. Um, very uneducated. A little bit rough around the, uh, rough around the edges. But how God used him. And, and here's, I just love this story. Over a hundred years ago, a committee of ministers in a certain city was discussing the possibility of having D.L. Moody to serve as the evangelist during a citywide evangelistic campaign. Finally, one young pastor who did not want to invite Moody stood up and said, why Moody? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? There was silence. Then an old godly minister spoke up and said this, No, he does not have a monopoly of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly of D.L. Moody. An awesome story. And this man, with very little advantages, grew up dirt poor, shoe salesman, no education, but he decided to live his life being, as Paul says, continually filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not all of him, because that won't happen until heaven, but he had a lot of him. And the result was he literally changed the world. Okay, that, that's the main thing I want to keep coming back to, the infilling and in, dwelling. But let's spend the, the, the second half here, the remainder of our time. I want to talk about these other six pictures of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is an advocate, a helper, and a comforter. Uh, John 16, verse 7. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, have you ever had the thought, I have many times, wouldn't it be cool to be alive when Jesus was walking the planet? He's alive today, but when he was, you know, he lived to be 33, but he only had three years of public ministry. Wouldn't it be cool? How many of you have ever had that thought? I mean, I just love love that thought, you know, that we could could see him. And we often think it would be great, but think about that. Uh, The odds of us ever having an encounter with him would be minuscule. He only had interactions with a fraction of the world's population. He could only be in one place at a time. Think if Jesus were walking the earth today. Say we had three years with him now, and he had to divide himself among the 7.1 billion people in the world. And say he divided it by countries of their population. So India and China would get him most of the time. And I actually did the math on this. The United States is 4.4% of the world's population. So we would get him for 48 days. And so 319 million of us would have to share him uh, for 48 days. And so Jesus said, uh, I tell you, it's for our good that he goes away. Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, then, I'll, then I will send him uh, to you. Okay? The advocate comes from the Greek word paraclete, which means to come alongside. It literally means a helper. Uh, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. 
Have you ever thought that it would be great if you could uh, kind of take church with you everywhere? I've had people say to me, you know, Pastor Glenn, I can kind of focus on the things of God when uh, I'm here in church, but boy, there's so many distractions out there at, at work. And, and even for, you know, Pastor Jay and I as pastors, uh, working around a lot of great Christian people, boy, you just get distracted. You never feel as close to God as when you're in the middle of worship. You never feel like as focused on eternal things as when the Word is, is being preached. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just take church with you everywhere? If you walked into Walmart and there was Pastor Jay in the praise band in the corner of Walmart, uh, you walk into school, and there's a sermon over the uh, PA system. You walk into work, and there's a scripture reading on your phone, intercoms there, whatever you have uh, there at work. So you don't get to take church with you, but you do get to take the Holy Spirit with you. When we walk out of here, I mean, we have the Holy Spirit right now. When we walk out, He goes with us every step of the way, and He walks with us and encourages us. He is our advocate, our helper, and our and our com- comforter. And then the next one the Bible says is he's a permanent guest. There's another picture of him, a permanent guest. It says in John 14, verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. What's this word right here? Forever. Okay, he's a permanent guest. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you'll see me. Because I live, you also uh, will, you also will live. On that day, you'll realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. William Barclay writes, when Jesus was in the body, he could not be everywhere with them. It was always a case of greetings and farewells. The next picture is that of a teacher. Uh, John 14, uh, verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. We have so many wonderful teachers uh, in our church family, um, public school teachers and private school teachers and homeschool teachers and Bible teachers within our, within our church family. And what does a teacher do? A teacher, Jesus says here, teaches us all things, explains all things, and reminds us of what we've already been taught. A teacher wants to see us succeed. I love this story. Get such a kick out of it. True story. Uh, pastor Steve Winger, he's a pastor from Lubbock, Texas. And he tells the true story of his last college exam was in a logic class. And it was a very difficult class. It was the hardest class he took all during college was his final college exam, his final college class. Professor very hard, material very hard. But the professor said that they could bring to the final exam as much information as they could fit on a piece of notebook paper. Do you ever have a professor do that? I had a professor that would do that, would say, you can take as much in as you can fit on a piece of notebook paper, front and back. And so you know what you would do? You would write in tiny print, just as small as you could read, and you'd fill the whole side there, and then you'd fill the whole side. Uh, that, that's what you would know. You'd, you'd cram everything you could into the front and the back. But true story, one student walks into class and takes a piece of notebook paper and places it on the floor uh, next to uh, his, his desk. 
Then he brought in with him an advanced logic student to stand on the paper. And the advanced logic student, throughout the test, told him everything he needed to throughout the exam. He was the only person in the class that got an A on, on that particular exam. And I'm sure part of it was that was, that was a great example of logic, wasn't it, to, to, to figure out that way around uh, the rules. And then a prosecutor, uh, John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. When he comes, he will prove. Let's remember that word for a moment. He'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And then about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now that word prove, if we go back to verse 8, that word prove comes from the Greek word alencho, which means uh, to convict. It's a technical legal word which means convincing people of their guilt. It's something like a law enforcement person in an interrogation room or like an attorney, uh, a lawyer in a courtroom. It's a word used for cross-examination or interrogation until guilt is admitted. So Jesus says with regard to sin, he's going to expose the sin of the world to the world and within our own hearts as well. With regard to righteousness, he's going to point us to the fact that Jesus is the only answer for our sin. And with regard to judgment, uh, the world and Satan will now be judged. And then a couple more, a guide. Uh, John 16, verse 12. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet, okay? He will tell you what is yet to come. Now, this is an awesome advantage from a counselor, okay? Counselors are tremendous, and I love our counselors. But this is a counselor with a capital C that knows the future. Uh, God knows the future. And that means when the Holy Spirit guides us in life decisions, He knows the future. How many would find that helpful in a decision you have to make? To know the future. And so when you're about to pick somebody to marry... The Holy Spirit knows how that decision is going to work out. When you're trying to decide on a job, the Holy Spirit uh, knows how that job is going to work out. When you choose uh, who to date, who's going to be your boyfriend or girlfriend, the Holy Spirit knows how that's going to turn out. Uh, when we have a financial decision, I'm um, going to buy a house or something, uh, the Holy Spirit knows the future, and He is there right beside us, just like that advanced logic student, standing beside us when we come to those crossroads and make those big decisions. And then the final one is a newborn. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Now just a little bit of a tangent here. Is many Bible scholars believe he's talking about the resurrection, uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection. In a little while you'll see me no more, I'll be crucified, but then three days later, on Easter Sunday, after a little while, you'll see me. But many other Bible scholars, and I happen to agree with those because of the context in which Jesus says this, believe this means in a little while you'll see me no more. Is talking about the ascension. So Jesus' crucifixion, it's resurrection, then he ascends to heaven. But then 40 days later, after a little while, then they see him again at the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, that doesn't matter. It's, it's good either way. 
But uh, I think in the context, it's interesting that it's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 20, skipping down to verse 20, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Verse 22. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Uh, When a baby's born, there's great pain, Jesus says. But later on, as we look back on that, nobody at the birthday of a child recounts the pain. We just celebrate the birthday. Um, I like to joke about this, that uh, if men had the babies instead of women, everybody would have just one, okay? (laughs) Because we'd be like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I ain't never doing that again, you know. Uh, my goodness, I remember when Kimberly, when the girls were born, I just was like, my jaw, I was slack-jawed, like, oh my goodness. Oh my, and, and if I had had to do that, that'd be all she wrote, baby, you know. Now, the other thing about women that's so funny to me is that when women get together um, and uh, that have had children, that have had babies, uh, I, I tease my wife Kimberly about this. It's like a stopwatch. How long will it take before they tell childbirth stories? Okay? I'm telling you, you time it. You watch it themselves. And, and then what happens is they, 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 they relish in the pain of it. It, it, is, it was a painful experience, but now it's great joy. And then, okay, I'll see if I have the guts to say this with Kimberly sitting on the front row at 11.11. They exaggerate the pain as time goes on. And, and now the labor was three months of intense labor. Oh my goodness, uh, it was like, uh, you know, I, I, w- I was in labor for, you know, it starts out an hour, and then it's 24 hours, and then it's week, and, 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 but why? Because there's joy at the end of that. And so we actually savor the pain when we know the joyful result. Anybody want to say amen to that? And that's true not just in childbirth, it's true, I mean, how many of us, like, you know, wax eloquent about how hard school was before we got that degree, or how hard the early days in your job were before you mastered that particular skill? Uh, because uh, he says here in this verse that even though jo- weeping may enjoy for, near for a night, joy will come in the morning. And so Jesus says here, um, uh, now is your time of grief, but I'll see you again, and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now, I believe that the Lord called you here this morning, maybe just to hear this last thing I want to share. And you know what? Let's go ahead and have the praise band come up right now for a closing song. Uh, This is why you got out of bed on clock change day, and it was still dark, um, and, 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 and here you are, you know? Um, maybe, maybe this is why you got up this morning for this. Whatever you're going through, back to verse 22 again, whatever you're going through, here's the word that I want to share with you. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And Jesus says, now is your time of grief. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's breaking your heart right now. I don't know what's frustrating you. I don't know what's discouraging you. I don't know what kept you up last night. Now is your time of grief. But he says, I will see you again. And then you're going to rejoice. 
And no one is going to take away your joy. And so I believe the word God wants me just to share with you, with your particular situation. You came to church here just to hear this one word from the Lord. Whatever you're going through with one of your children or, or with, um, uh, with um, something that's broken your heart, some problem at work, uh, some difficulty in your health, I, I don't know what it is for you, but God knows. The Holy Spirit knows. He's right there with you. He knows. He's the comforter. He's the comforter. And he wants me to say to you these words. Whatever you're going through, weeping may endure for a, a, a night, but you hang in there because joy is coming in the morning and no one is going to take away your joy. And all God's family said, amen. amen. Woo! All righty. Let's stand up together. We're going to close in worship. If any of you... Um, Students have an exam this week. Do you want to borrow my notebook, piece of paper? Uh, just let me know. I got this for you afterwards. Let's worship for a few more minutes.